Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. This week we have a mix of cultural treats for you. We'll be telling you a story of the complex and intertwined history of espionage and male homosexuality. And we'll be celebrating Black History Month by hearing two legendary artists reflect on their lives in art and activism. Then, finally, we'll be heading to Singapore to introduce you to Natasha. No, she's not about to sweep you off your feet. Natasha is the name of this year's Singapore Biennale. And we'll be finding out just why the organisers named her thus a little later on. Now, first up on today's show, a story of English espionage and its historical links with homosexuality. A story of intrigue, sabotage and surveillance intertwined with one of passion and friendship. A new film by Studio Voltaire explores this relationship through a fictional tale narrated by Ben Whishaw. You'll hear parts of that film, as well as its creator, artist and writer Hugh Lemmy, speaking about the process of it being made. When did I become a traitor? It's the sort of question that seems terribly relevant to those who aren't, but a formality to those of us who are. When is simply a moment on the way to being. I suppose there was a moment when it passed from being a lonely notion to being the act itself. Yet one could always have stepped back from a couple of acts of youthful indiscretion. After all, one must imagine that there are moments in the life of most young men where the thought of treachery might cross his mind, an obliging friend, a comrade. At the right time or in the right place, he reaches out and one might act upon it. But does that make you a traitor for life? Well, yes, I suppose I am. But the question of when I turned, as it were, seems really to be a concern of those who never did and like to imagine they never could. To the journalist, the member of parliament, the man on the Clapham omnibus, to the controller, the officer, the agent, indeed to me, the question is of passing interest at best. All I can be sure of is that once I was not a traitor, and now I am. These are the facts. The story between them is intelligence. 
I guess I've always had an interest in a lot of these sort of mid-century stories about English homosexuality and this sort of time period of how the sort of homosexual identity and what became today like the gay identity formed around the sort of 1920s and 1930s in the UK and how that was really shaped and inflected by class and politics and, and race and all these sort of things. And in that interest in research, they're just was this recurrent theme as I was, I was reading these things and writing about these things that there were these these men who kept popping up who were working in the security services and in some ways like uh, one of my sort of first sort of conscious memories I guess of of homosexuality in the public sphere was was actually the point at which they allowed gay men to serve again in the foreign office in the mid-1990s something about that even as a child sort of I, I don't know, I think my mom talked to me about it and it's, it has this interest. So in my mind, I was like, this is very strange. That there's all these stories about these, these gay men serving in the security services or working as double agents, when my experience of it was that somehow they were shut out. So I was sort of interested in that story and, and how one thing led to the other. And in that research, it just became this web. Every time I sort of started a new sort of channel of research and as a spider diagram, say, ticked it off in this little box, suddenly I'd re realised, oh, this person appears in this person's story and this person was also here at this time. So that's kind of how the interest emerged. And I was like, oh, actually, there's a much deeper, more complex story here than just um, the fact that there were some gay men as spies, which is that the the ident there's something about the homosexual identity as it was forming at that time that actually was intrinsically linked with the creation of sort of spycraft in the British state. So that's how the story sort of for me started. But as I got into it, I realized that so many of these histories, although a lot of them are very, very well written, very well researched, they they tend to be from, let's say, like a sort of military history position. Um, and I was really interested in these life stories that were underneath it, that were sort of pushing to get out. Espionage has like a particularly rich history in England and with the creation of like the English state, first of all, and then the British state. The English have always been particularly good at it. Queen Elizabeth I, one of the sort of main qualities or aspects of her rule was this development of this very, very sophisticated intelligence network. And that that's sort of something that's grown both internally and externally in, in England and in the UK ever since. And the nature of espionage in, in England is quite distinct in some ways in its development from for example, United States. So, uh, and so the story I'm telling is is very much like an English story, and I, I'm I'm not saying that's conflate England and um and Scotland and Wales as all England. I'm saying specifically English and not a British story necessarily, because it's to do with the reproduction of certain class values within the South of England, especially. But place just became so like obviously important as a way of telling that story that it's a, a conception of Englishness is really tied to place. I mean, that is one of the the roots of all forms of nationalism is is the countryside, is the land, these sort of things. So telling that story through place and through the idea of these people having some sense, supposedly having some sense of loyalty, not just to the state, but to Englishness itself. And that is what became, I think, so shocking for so many people in the betrayal of a lot of these men of these nations. And at the same time, then it becomes obvious that, that if people are living actually in some ways outside of that society, then their relationship, because they're homosexual at a time when homosexuality is not really tolerated legally and, and socially in most places, their relationship towards their Englishness becomes really complicated. And secondly, because the story is also like a psychogeographical one, the story of espionage is a psychogeographical one. You can locate so many of the parts of the story, so many, so much of the development of espionage to specific buildings, buildings in London. And so like, this is where it happened. 
and you can trace the sort of development of these different spy agencies through them moving from these different buildings and the degree to which they're regarded as um, publics, private. You know, a lot of them stayed secret for a long time and really, you know, when they started to build the new MI6 building in central London, that was like this big gesture of the sort of the opening up of the intelligence services into like the public eye. So buildings are, are obviously really, really important to them. Deceit is the English game. I think I learned even as a schoolboy that lying was a precondition not only of victory but merely of functioning. From that point on, lying came naturally to me, like scanning a room for familiar and hostile faces, and I reveled in its rewards. All around me, a network of interlocking lies meticulously maintained, like a well-kept country garden with its team of groundskeepers. We call it manners, politics, business and diplomacy, this fabric of functioning lies, and we are bred to be its custodians. But I don't think that even I had ever appreciated that the greatest Englishman was he who could lie to himself and maintain that lie single-handedly, in the privacy of his own home or in some godforsaken little torture chamber. That lie we call espionage, and it is an English craft. Well, I worked very closely with my collaborator, Onyeka Igwe, and from the very start, we've been sort of discussing the shape and the visual language of the film. And we were drawing a lot of influences there from the sort of already established lang like visual languages that are legible to, to people in, in the UK about espionage, which is, I guess, essentially spy films. Obviously, James Bond. Although I guess, yeah, that's a minor reference to us. Perhaps more influential would be the 1979 adaptation of Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, which tells a very, a very interesting story through quite a slow way of filming, which sort of is important because the, 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 the whole point of, of uh, that TV show and, and the carrier's books are about this, the networks that create espionage and the, the divided loyalties and the sort of ethical pressures and um, compromises that people make. And so actually so much of espionage is actually about silence about quiet about observation and not about chases and guns and you know car chases so when we started yeah, putting it together we wanted to tell this story of this visual language which was quite slow paced and then to try and balance within that a mixture of or again a, maybe a compromise between this sort of vision of england as this bucolic never-changing sort of pastoral landscape and um, a land of compromise and then and then also a place of claustrophobia and um, of people being watched over and watching over each other. So there's a lot of shots. We, we, we try to shoot a lot from upper stories of buildings down to crowds, for example, to reproduce this sort of idea that was in the mind and was the moral justification for a lot of spies of sort of watching over this uh, placid population and protecting them on their own behalf. And that, that, that's what gave them the permission to do some pretty heinous things in the process. This network of lies dominates England. How could it not? With such appetites as rulers for revenge and control and possession, anything less than etiquette would be a barbarian's knife fight. We would be living in ditches and huts. Instead, we have built this, an empire. On the careful management of our appetites, so as that their consequences and conquests are by and large directed outwards. Everything inside is one thing, Everything outside, quite another. We are a devilish nation. 
Ben Whishaw narrating Ungentle there, and you also heard the voice of the film's creator, Hugh Lemmy. Next on today's programme, we're celebrating Black History Month with a very special interview. We're heading to the 198 Gallery in Brixton, southwest London, which has championed the artistic creativity of the African and Caribbean diaspora since its inception in 1988. Their new expanded building was finished last year and won an award from the Royal Institute of British Architects. As well as the new building, the organisation has a newly appointed chairman, the Jamaican-born British-based poet Linton Kwesi Johnson. Arts journalist Amarose Abrams headed to the gallery to meet Linton and the American artist behind the gallery's new show, Ben F. Jones, to reflect on their lives in activism and art in the US and the UK. Here is Linton. A lot has changed in this country. I remember when I was a child, black people in this country, especially those of us from the, the Commonwealth, were on the periphery of British society. We were marginalized. We were treated worse than third-class citizens. And we've made enormous progress, and we've made that progress largely because of our parents' generation, the so-called Midrash generation, which my mentor, the late John LaRose, prefers to call the heroic generation because of the solid foundation they were able to lay down for their children and grandchildren. Well, my generation, we were the rebel generation, and we didn't tolerate what our parents reluctantly mm -hmm. tolerated. We rebelled, mm -hmm. and through our rebellion, and through organization and education, we've been able to break down some of the barriers mm -hmm. that were erected against our integration into British society. Turning point were the insurrections of the 1980s, beginning with the Brixton riots of 81, which spread through most inner city areas in the country. More uprisings again in 1985, Broadwater Farm was the, the, the beginning of that, of that particular uprising. And of course, the Black People's Day of Action, which happened on the 2nd of March, 1981, when 20,000 people marched to protest the fascist murder of 13 young black children who were enjoying a birthday party. And the Black People's Day of Action demonstrated to the authorities, to the establishment, that black people in this country had power, had political power, and we could mobilize that power when we, if and when we were forced to do so. Ben, how have things changed in the U.S.? A good friend of uh, Linton and myself years ago always used to say uh, the struggle never stops, you know, so uh, things will always improve, hopefully, but the struggle is still on. Incidentally, you know, me being here uh, during the Queen's um, memorial, and I watched uh, these documentaries on her life, on her son's life, the king's life, and they were done beautifully. I mean, it was just beautifully they did, but, but it didn't talk too much about the plunder that this country did in India, did in Africa, did the Caribbean, and even though uh, those countries uh, have gotten their 
so-called independence, I'm sure this country, England, still has an economic stake in those countries, you know, so that's another kind of power. So um, in the U.S. right now, one of the battles that we have is that uh, this idea of critical race theory is that there are parts of American history that have not been told or taught to the young people, and uh, there are people in the United States who are trying to block that. And so the struggle never stops. And as uh, I look at uh, this country, uh, yes, it has its differences, but it also has uh, just, uh, what was it, a couple of weeks ago, this young black... Chris Carver. Yes, was killed, you know. So um, we have to make sure, as Linton says, consciousness, and consciousness put in action. African Americans, in a sense, have made history. When, and we were just making ours now. So we have a, a lot to learn from them. Their victories as well as their defeats, um, you know, the advances and the setbacks, uh, and so on. So yeah, there's been always been this kind of relationship. And during the 1990s, there was this great collaboration. Collaboration is not the right word, but I can't think of another one right now. During the 1980s, right up to the middle of the 1990s, through the International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books, which was organized by Mogul Overture, New Beacon Books and Race Today Publications, we had a lot of relationship with, with our American brothers and sisters. You know, we had speakers coming over from America, um, writers coming over from America, um, you know, people like Miri Baraki, for, um, for example, Intozaki, Shange, you know, yeah, it was going on. In this country, it made me think that I, I, I'm back in my old country. It's like this visit to me, I said to myself, I'm looking at people and I see these differences, but I see so many commonalities in terms of uh, the, the young people uh, here and the way they look, the way they dress, I think they're I think they're a little more creative with what they do with their hair when they have it natural, you know, than we are. But it's it's wonderful it's wonderful, you know. But just hope, as Linton said, that uh, it's about consciousness and it's about you gotta put the consciousness into action. Yeah, those names I mentioned earlier on. It wasn't just it wasn't just poets and writers. Mm -hmm. We had some some heavyweight people like Manin Marable, mm -hmm. Abdul Al Kalimat, mm -hmm. and then we had big stars like Maya Angelou taking part in the in, in the book fair during the book fair years. You know, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that that the young people know about this. That they, it's so important that these young people know the history that's preceded them. Because to me, it will give them, it's like um, when Linton was interviewing, okay, let us, how? Someone asked a question in the audience, what kind of um, advice would you give to young people? And she said, well, I don't, I don't think I should give advice to young people. They have to find that way, their way. In one respect, I think uh, she's right, but then in another respect, I didn't completely agree because here, um, when you look at the history of, of Linton, 
What does his life, what value can it have to young people? He would have been famous anyway. Yeah, we're not you here know, to talk about you know, me, man. You know, well, he, would have, he would have been famous anyway. We're here anyway. to talk about you and so, your world. So, so, so the thing is, we have to pass this information on to young people. They do with it what they choose to do, but at least know some of this. One thing that strikes me about this kind of information revolution that we've had recently, it chimes into what you're saying, because I think a lot of the time people say, well, why don't we have an international book fair to do with the radical black thought? It's like, well, we did have one. And as you say, it's important, even if all you do is look back and check the names, see who appeared, having that resource, being able to see that that's something that happened, and it's a part of your history, as you say, is incredibly important for people when they look to the future. Yeah, as Ben says, these things happen in waves, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like movements, movements rise up when, historically, there is a need for something like that to happen. Mm -hmm and then they sort of disappear mm -hmm. and then maybe 20, 30, 40 years down the line another yes. movement arrives but there is some continuity mm -hmm. between what went on before and what's happening now mm -hmm. but yes, it's very important that um, young people avail themselves of the knowledge of what has gone on before um, we work with a lot of young people here at, at 198 we work with them because, you know, the place is called 198 Contemporary Arts and Learning. So uh, we have a program of adult education, which, which has been going on for some time. And we work with, um, with young people, especially those with special needs, you know, maybe physical, um, physical or mental disabilities. We work with those kind of, of, of young people. And during the summer months, we have programs for them younger ones, the little, little ones, so learning is important. That was dub poet Linton Quasi Johnson alongside artist Ben F. Jones in conversation with Amma Rose Abrams. And if you haven't heard Linton's poetry, we highly recommend looking him up on YouTube. <laughs> And finally, on today's show, we're heading to Singapore to meet Natasha. The Singapore Biennale, one of the biggest art events in Asia, is returning this year. It will open on October the 16th and run until March next year. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant talked to June Yap, the Director of Curatorial and Collections at the Singapore Art Museum, one of the Biennale's co-artistic directors, to hear what's on the agenda and why the Biennale is simply named Natasha. For us, the Biennale will be presented across a number of different types of venues. We will have our space at Tanyopaga District Park. This is a new space for SEM. We've been operating here since this year. For some, it might be still quite new. It is also a very voluminous space, which is fantastic for contemporary art. So we're, we are presenting some exciting projects here and installations, and I think we, we are hoping that our audiences will be uh, quite thrilled to see these new spaces that we have here. At the same time, we are presenting works in a number of other spaces around us and also in the Southern Islands. 
so the Southern Islands is really something quite unique for us this time round. We've not done the Biennale in the islands before. The islands, I guess, are uh, spaces that, from which we can look at the island itself, you know, re reflect upon our island state of Singapore, but also how we, how we have ex been experiencing life during the pandemic, when we started to look more inwardly and, and look at our own spaces and spaces to explore. So for us then, being able to present works in the Southern Islands, we hope will provide a, a different kind of experience for our audiences, you know. You're kind of in Singapore, but you're not really in Singapore. So the two islands that we're going to be at is St. John's Island and Lazarus Island. And we do have a few works that, are, that look at the histories of these islands. So that's quite exciting for us in terms of the spaces in, that um, audiences can visit and also then that would feed into this journey of um, the Biennale and um, the artworks. So tell me about the name of the Biennale. Why Natasha? Well, Natasha is a name. And I think for us, a name is something one is very familiar with, right? We are born with a name or given a name when we are born. We are raised with a name and it, it's a name that perhaps we use to recognize ourselves and also others. Through this name, we construct our relationships with each other. And perhaps a name also then defines proximities. Like, for example, if you know someone very, very well, you might have a nickname for them. You know, you might have a special name for them. So for us, name, naming the Biennale is a way of creating a particular kind of relationship. We want audiences to feel that the Biennale can be something they are familiar with, something they can get close to, right? So the name Natasha is actually not specific. We could have named the Biennale a different name, but we thought Natasha is a name that a number of us have. We, we have friends and we know artists with that name. So it seems quite familiar. Um, but for those who are not, then perhaps it's a chance to get to know Natasha. Could you go into a bit more detail about some of the highlights, whether it's artists or events that you're really looking forward to? So clearly I'm very excited about the islands. <laughs> but that's really because, you know, in our lives in Singapore, it's oftentimes very urban, landscape-oriented. Uh, even though it's an island, we forget we are actually, that these tropical shores are just a stone's throw away. We forget this, you know, to experience this ourselves. In relation to the islands and the shores, um, I think I would like to highlight a work by Singapore artist Zarina Mohammed, which is titled Moving Earth, Crossing Water, Eating Soil. So this is a work that's situated in St. John's Island, and it references a historic Bugis divination compass as a way to create some kind of orientation of uh, cultural, social, geographical and mythical spaces. So it's quite a layered work, but it's also a work that allows us to look through, look at the island and its histories with a slightly different, with different lenses. And, and to see then how can we shift from one perspective to another. What the artist is trying to do then is to understand a place that's polyphonic, you know, not just with a single, single perspective or with a single way of understanding it. So I think that that's one very exciting work. The international level, Singapore is known for a few things. And oftentimes it's, uh, it's a certain perfection, perhaps, you know, it's the, the cleanliness, it's the urban landscape that is um, very organized, you know, it's very pragmatically laid out. And I think what we want to show them is uh, really the, the details within this itself, right? It's histories. For these histories, not just to be in, in the sense of like a national history or something that is written into history books, but also within its various layers, you know, to understand Singapore 
in a more nuanced sort of way, through its different voices, through its different lenses, perhaps. So it's a more complex perspective of Singapore. And that is it for today's programme. My thanks to Naomi Shu Elegant, Hugh Lemmy, Linton Kwesi Johnson, Ben F. Jones and Amma Rose Abrams. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung and Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>